Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. The University at Buffalo School of Social Work is making a difference every day. Through the generation and transmission of knowledge, promotion of social justice, and service to humanity. We offer MSW and PhD programs, continuing education programs and credits, online courses, licensure exam preparation, professional seminars and certificates, and much, much more. To learn more about the UB School of Social Work, please visit www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. Hi from Buffalo, where a rush hour traffic jam means that you'll have to tap your brakes occasionally. I'm Peter Sabota. In early October of this year, the U.S. formally apologized to the government of Guatemala after it was discovered that from 1946 through 48, U.S. physicians conducted experiments in which Guatemalan prisoners, patients in a psychiatric hospital, and soldiers were deliberately injected with venereal diseases without their informed consent. Almost 700 persons were exposed to infection and antibiotic treatment without their consent. Ethical researchers and many people cringed as bad memories resurfaced related to the infamous Tuskegee syphilis experiments, especially after it was learned that U.S. government research physician John Cutler was involved in both studies. In the first episode of a two-part series, our guest, Alankar Sharma, discusses his research and interest in the intersection of race, gender, and public health research and policy in the United States. Casting a critical eye on the scholarly attention given this intersection, Mr. Sharma reviews a story of the American Social Hygiene Association's Negro Project of the early 1940s. Aimed at preventing and reducing the extent of venereal disease among the African-American population, it lasted only a few years before fading away. Using the gender and race framework, Mr. Sharma contrasts this study with the well-documented Tuskegee experiment, which ran with government support for 40 years before a whistleblower prompted its conclusion. In this first installment, Mr. Sharma provides a historical perspective and compares the two studies, highlighting how stereotypical and dominant perceptions of black men played a role in the history of U.S. public health research. Alankar Sharma is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Minnesota School of Social Work and visiting instructor at the University of Iowa School of Social Work. His academic interests include gender-based violence, child sexual abuse, sexuality rights, social justice and diversity, and international social work. He maintains a key interest in understanding masculinities from a feminist and social justice perspective. Mr. Sharma was interviewed by Dr. Ajwa Robinson, assistant professor here at the UB School of Social Work, and also the co-host of our podcast series. Dr. Robinson interviewed Mr. Sharma by telephone. We'd like to mention that this episode contains some background distortion that is due to technical problems we experienced while recording. Thanks, and we hope you like the podcast. This is Ajawa Robinson, host of the Living Proof podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. And my guest today is Alankar Sharma. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Sharma. Thank you, Ajawa. Pleasure to be here. 
Now, your interest is in the intersectionality of race, gender, and public health. And in a recent article, you discuss two different government programs. One, the American Social Hygiene Association's Negro Project and the Tuskegee study. Both of those were initiated in the 1940s regarding the spread of venereal disease among African Americans. So my first question is, why that topic? Why now? Aren't those just two historical artifacts? What do they have to do with us today? That's a great question. I'll answer it in two parts. Firstly, why that project? And then why is it relevant in the contemporary context? In terms of why I did that, to be honest, when I was working on this project, I was going through the archives at the social welfare archives of the University of Minnesota. And I was going through the archives with a different agenda in mind. I had a different project in mind. I was looking at the history of sexuality education in the United States. And as I was going through the archives, I came across this project, which really piqued my interest in the subject. And I tried to go back to the literature and I asked the archivist about if anybody had done research about this project or had written about this project because it was fascinating to me as I looked at it. The information I got both from the archivist and from the literature was that nobody had really looked at this. And that to me was interesting because I strongly felt that there was an important story in this project that needed to be told. But it wasn't a random interest. I have been interested in the field of masculinities, especially in gender overall and in masculinities specifically for a while now with regard to my different academic works. So I've been doing research on how adult men make meaning of their childhood sexually abusive experiences. And that's just one example of my interest in the field of masculinity. And I was interested in the intersection between gender and race. And therefore, that's why this project, when I came across it in the archives, that's why it grabbed my attention and pulled me towards it. Now, I think you asked a very important question about why is it important? You know, why can't we treat it as a historical artifact, as a dinosaur, and then you know not revisit it? But I think it's really, really important that we, we revisit history because coming from a critical race theory perspective, it's important to challenge ahistoricism, which means that history has a profound impact on how we live our lives today. And it's almost impossible to make positive, structural, and sustainable challenges today uh, especially in social work, where we are working to limit challenges that are of a structural nature that impact people's quality of lives negatively. It's really impossible to do that without paying attention to how history has constructed social identities, mm. how people have made meaning of history in their lives. For example, there is contemporary research that suggests that many people within the African-American communities have a mistrust of health services today, even in today's society. And there is interdisciplinary research that suggests that. So we have to ask, where does this mistrust come from? Why is it that certain communities have a better access to public health systems than others? And in order to answer those questions, I think it's really, really important to visit and keep on revisiting history and, and trying to understand how our lives today are so deeply interconnected with the lives of people who 
lived in this country, in the society several years ago. Yes. Before we go much further, just for the sake of our listeners, if you could define masculinities and uh-huh. critical race theory, just so we're all on the same page. I think it's really important to visit some of those concepts. And of course, I want to preface it by saying that there is no one definition of masculinities or of critical race theory. It's a contested subject. It's also a subject that many authors, many scholars from many disciplines have written and talked about. So I can't really provide one definition, but how I approach it in my work, and that's why I say masculinities and not masculinity, in the sense I talk about it as a plural instead of a singular, because I come from the perspective of hegemonic masculinity, which was introduced by Connell and then developed further by different scholars. But that concept essentially means that masculinities, it's a socially constructed concept of how men are expected to perform, to behave, to act in society. And I say it's a socially constructed because it's not, in my belief, it's not something that's anatomical. It's not something that's inherent in people. It's something they pick up from their social environments, ideas about how they can be ideal men or how they are supposed to act like men in society. And often those ideas they come from a system of patriarchy, which, to define patriarchy, is a system of gender relations, essentially, where men are supposed to be or expected to be the most powerful gender in society. Now, I say masculinities in plural instead of masculinity as singular because there is no one masculinity. There are other systems of privilege and oppression and social identities that intersect this concept. For example, there is gay masculinity, or there is transgender masculinity, or there is black masculinity, or there is immigrant masculinity. And again, within them, there is no one masculinity, there is no one black masculinity. Different black men may do masculinity different ways. And therefore, and that brings me to the idea of that as people, it's not just the idea that people receive from the society about how they should behave as men, they also have a role to play in deciding um, how they want to behave as men. So they get this information from society, but they have um, power to resist it or to accept it or to challenge it. So that's what I mean by uh, masculinity. And coming to critical race theory, um, that is, that is, a, that is a, a conceptual framework or an ideological uh, framework that believes in the centrality of race um, in not just people's lives, but in social systems as well. Um, In other words, we cannot look at issues, um, social issues, without paying attention to the element of race. For example, we cannot understand poverty without paying attention to race. We cannot understand violence without paying attention to race. We cannot understand um, um, social welfare system without paying attention to race. So it believes in the centrality of race in different fields. Um, also, it is interdis- interdisciplinary in nature, that is, it's not confined to any one uh, scholarly or academic discipline. Um, it, 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 it has relevance um, to um, every discipline uh, that there is um, in, in today's society. And finally, as I've mentioned earlier, it challenges ahistoricism, that is, that it's um, 
it believes in the power of history to influence our lives today. Uh, and one more thing that I want to mention about that is, is the critical piece in it, uh, in critical race theory, which, which believes that uh, the race relations in today's society are unequal and unjust, and therefore it has a social justice mandate uh, that, is, that is, we need to approach issues uh, when we approach issues from a critical race theory perspective, we believe in making systems more equitable and acknowledge that currently they are not. Wow, that's great. <laughs> Thanks for those definitions. I think that gives us a good context to which to frame the rest of our conversation in. And I want to pick back up on something you said earlier related to African-Americans being reticent about being involved with certain health systems. I think most people are familiar with the story about the Tuskegee syphilis study, but I know before I read your information that I had not heard about the Negro Project by the American Social Hygiene Association. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that and some of the comparisons you made. That's primarily the reason why I did this project, because when I came across this project in the archival uh, documents, I was pulled towards it because I had a feeling that there was a story here, and that's why I went back to literature, and I was disappointed to find that it had not been talked about in the literature, in the major scholarly works, at least. And I believe, as I read more of those archival documents, and as I tried to make meaning of those documents, it became more and more clear to me that here was a story that needed to be told and a story that had not been told thus far. It is important not only to discuss stories of oppression, such as the Tuskegee study, it's also important to talk about stories that resist oppression. And in my opinion, the Negro Project of the American Social Hygiene Association was a step in that direction of resisting racial divide and inequality in American society. And the way I could tell that story was to compare and contrast it with that of the Tuskegee study, which is a very well-known story today, as you, as you yourself mentioned. So let me begin with giving a brief overview of American Social Hygiene Association. It's an organization that I believe it's currently called American Social Health Association, but when it began, it was called American Social Hygiene Association. Uh, it started as a result of the progressive era politics in the year 1913, and it focused on what they refer to as vice diseases, in other words, when real diseases are sexually transmitted diseases. And as the term vice diseases itself reflects, they approached public health from a moralistic framework. And initially they thought about vice diseases as a problem where the vectors of disease were uh, sex workers and men were essentially the victims of disease. And therefore it had moralistic leaning as they started working in this field. About the Negro project of American Social Hygiene Association, we do not know very much about the work of the association with African-American communities in the United States. Very little is known. From what we know, we know that the association in its beginning years showed a general disinterest in working with this community which can be construed as a racist practice in and of itself because they were generally neglectful of working with African-Americans. But some scholars have also discussed that they were neglectful because uh, black Americans were constructed as hypersexual and people who whose lives were, where disease was prevalent element in their lives and therefore 
when it was so prevalent, what was the point of working with this community? And that is the attitude that some scholars argue the association held in its beginning years. In 1920s and 30s, we begin to see a gradual departure from the previous racial attitude of this association. And one or two scholars have talked about it, but none have talked about the Negro project in their work. One scholar who's talked about it has talked about the work association with African-American communities until 1940s. And because the project begins after 1940s, there is no mention of this project in her work either. But from her work, we find out that they had hired Franklin Nichols, an African-American social worker, to work with the African-American communities on sexually transmitted diseases issues. And the way they had tried to approach this work was through hiring him to start sex education programs in African-American educational institutions. But we do not know very much about that work. We also know that at that time, the association's work wasn't integrated or egalitarian by any means. It was segregated in the sense that they didn't have the same program for all people. They had different people working for European-Americans and, and then different people such as Franklin Nichols working with African-Americans. So it was segregated, it wasn't uh, integrated or egalitarian by any means. Nonetheless, it does suggest a departure from the previous attitude of the association where they did not want to or did not attempt to work with African-American communities at all. At this time, one or two scholars have also talked about how the association was trying to move away from what they considered overtly racist views. They were talking about that people, regardless of their race, need to have a good access to health systems in the country. That brings me to the Negro Project, which is a project that started in late 1930s, early 1940s. In late 1930s, they started thinking of this idea that they needed to work with their focus on African-American community because they, they argued that there was a high rate of prevalence of sexually transmitted diseases, such as syphilis, in the African-American community at that time. Some scholars later said that those were inflated statistics. But at that time, those were the statistics that they had access to, and those were the statistics that they believed in. And therefore, uh, for them, that high a level of prevalence was alarming, and therefore they wanted to work in a concerted way with African-American communities, and they started brainstorming ideas as to how best they can address this issue with the African-American community. Um, it's interesting that they felt that the rate was high, uh -huh. yet no work was being done in the African American. So how uh -huh. would they know that it was high? Interesting, but from what I remember now, they were going through medical data and statistics and looking at the, but then the other part about how, perhaps to answer that question, why they were not working is because of this belief or attitude that African American people were hypersexual and that disease was an integral part of the community, so why work? Yeah in terms of what would the benefit of working with people who were not going to benefit in yeah, from. Basically uh, a lost maybe, cause. Which is very unfortunate, but maybe that was, you know, one can speculate that it, that may have been one of the reasons uh, why they did not work with them initially. But as we see towards the 1930s, they started moving away from that belief system and started talking about that people, regardless of their race, had to have good access to healthcare systems. And they started looking at African-American population and started acknowledging uh, this high rate of prevalence as alarming. So that's what brings us to the Negro Project. This is also the time of the, uh, the Second World War. So it can also be speculated 
that the need for troops in terms of recruitment and retention for the Second World War also played a role in this renewed interest in syphilis and other sexually transmitted diseases and its prevention and cure in the African-American community because troops were required to fight the war and syphilis and other sexually transmitted diseases when real diseases were seen as a major factor that could cause loss in productivity. And so that's how those two were linked. So they started thinking of this idea and they developed a proposal, a funding proposal, and started floating it around in the early 1940s and to different funding organizations to seek money to start this project. They did not receive favorable response from several funding agencies because they said that they had already committed their funds elsewhere or they had lack of funds. But finally, this project did receive funding from the Federal Security Agency or rather the Sexual Protection Division of the Federal Security Agency in the early 1940s, not only in terms of money, but also in terms of human resources. Two officials of the Social Protection Division of the Federal Security Agency, namely Raymond Clapp and John Ragland, and John Ragland was, was a black man himself, they were working with the Social Protection Division and then they got involved in this project. Clapp, he steered the project at American Social Hygiene Association and John Ragland assisted him in that work. The proposal, it began, it began with a quote from the then Surgeon General Thomas Curran, and I want to read that quote because I think it's important to understand the nature of this project and what they were trying to achieve through this project. So the proposal began with this quote, and I quote, The Negro is not to blame because the syphilis rate is six times that of the white. He was free of it when our ancestors brought him from Africa. It is through no fault of hers that the colored woman remains infectious two and a half times as long as the white woman, unquote. And this quote itself reflects some of the, of course, much of the language is problematic and some of the ideas are problematic too, but it also reflects this idea that they wanted to work with the African-American community mm -hmm. without assigning blame to the African-American community for the high rate of prevalence of this disease in this community. So the core competence of the Negro Project, and I won't go into the specific examples, but I will talk about them broadly as, as ideas. What were the core components of this project? The core components were that the higher prevalence rate of embryo diseases among African-American population was alarming and, and was, a, was a concern for everyone that the high prevalence of venereal diseases in this community was not the fault of African-American community. These two ideas, they formed the foundation of the nature of this project and the intention uh, behind this project for American Social Hygiene Association, which is really important because in that socio-political climate, this was a departure from the norm to not assign blame to black people for a disease that they were facing and to acknowledge that they are not to be faulted for this high rate of prevalence in that community. We find that they had started doing this work at the national level. They wanted to do a funnel down kind of uh, work. So they wanted to start working at the national level initially, then at the regional level, then at the state level, then at the local level, that was the idea. So they started having national conferences such as they held the National Conference on Wartime Problems in Venereal Diseases Control in New York City in 1943. They held several such conferences that were at the national level with a healthy representation from the black community, they also had, they invited and collaborated with African-American leaders, such as leaders from churches and leaders from insurance corporations. 
And then they started having regional meetings, especially in the South, because the population of African-Americans was denser in the South uh, than in the North. So we find them having conversations about this issue uh, with community representatives uh, and, and African-American community leaders in states such as Texas, Missouri, Louisiana. That was a marked departure from the Tuskegee study, which was all researcher-initiated, run, and without any input from the community. Absolutely, and that's a great point, and that's a uh, that's a great contrast between the two projects. That they they did not invite participation from or leadership from the African American community, the the Tuskegee study officials, and but here they actively sought participation from African American community and not just participation, but they sought ideas. They said, well, here is what we want to do. We want to seek your leadership and opinions in terms of how should we approach this problem in this community. So I think you make a great point. That was a, a great contrast between the two projects, and both of which were funded by the federal government of the United States. I guess one of the things that I wonder about is what accounts for that more enlightened view. In your paper, you mentioned some quotes. For example, quote, we all need the help of the organized groups among the Negroes, end quote. And here's another quote. Negro leadership is of the greatest importance in any attack at venereal disease. You know, where did they get those those insights? Frankly, I don't know, uh, because um, there is not a whole lot that's available in the archival materials about this project. And I'll come to that in a minute. Maybe it was because them revisiting their older attitudes in the 1920s and 30s when they started thinking that divisive approach towards public health was not advisable and was not going to work. So I, I really do not know where they were getting these insights from. But I do know that some of their work I would consider quite progressive. Yes. This just occurred to me as you were talking about that. And it seems to have disappeared for a while, only to reemerge in, I don't know, late 80s, 90s, mm -hmm. with a new effort to get health information out there in a manner that folks from different cultures could understand. I'm thinking specifically of the REACH program. I'm not sure uh -huh. if you've heard of it, but it's racial and ethnic approaches to community health. And uh -huh. the whole premise behind that was that traditional messages about health were not getting through. So let's uh -huh. go to the communities and work with them to come up with their own solutions to what they identify as the critical health disparities in their area. That's a great point. It makes me think about the termination, or the sudden termination of this project. You know, you're talking about that it has disappeared for a while. I think it's the core of the message that I received when I contrasted these two stories, uh, that of the Negro Project and, and the Tuskegee study. But before I talk about that, the Negro Project, the records become, they, they go quiet all of a sudden in mid-40s. So the archival records that are available are only available from 1939 or early 1940s to about mid-40s, 1944 or so, and then they suddenly disappear. And while it cannot be said with any certainty, and I've gone over the records of the association even beyond that time, looked at 19, late 1940s, uh, 50s, um, 60s, looked at the annual reports, and um, there is very little mention of this anywhere else. So it can be speculated that the end of the war, the way the beginning of the war had something to do with a renewed interest in prevention of disease in African-American community, the end of the war also had to do with this disappearing interest 
in working with African American community towards the prevention of disease because as I said, the importance of this project and the funding that came with it probably was heavily influenced by the need for recruitment and retention of troops for the war. And as soon as the war ended, the interest perhaps also withered away, unfortunately, in working with this population on disease prevention and cure. And therefore, one might speculate that the funding dried up and because of the, the financial crunch that followed the war and earlier the social protection division which had provided funding and human resource support for this project they ceased to exist and then later on federal security agency itself ceased to exist within a few years so given those factors one might speculate that led to a sad end to this project because there was no more financial or human resource support that was offered or advanced for this project anymore because the war had ended yeah. And that in itself, to me, is a telling piece about, about race and gender uh, in public health from a historical perspective. I want to summarize quickly some of the major themes of the Negro Project okay. uh, that I think are important in order to compare and contrast it with the Tuskegee study to, to see what lessons can we draw from it for our contemporary contexts. One thing the Negro Project very actively acknowledged was that race was an active agent in the context, that they were not oblivious to the dynamics that emerged from race relations in the United States, that they were not colorblind in their approach. For example, the leaders of the Negro Project, they said, they said that they had to use two parallel approaches to address this issue in the African-American community. The message black communities would be that the rate of venereal disease is high, and that is alarming, but that they wanted to do without assigning blame. And they wanted to invite community leadership to address the problem, active participation from the community to address the issue within the community. On the other hand, they said the message to the white people would be that there cannot be a low rate of prevalence of venereal diseases among white communities as long as there was a high prevalence rate among black communities. And therefore, if they wanted to see the rate drop within their community, they had to commit themselves to its prevention in the black community as well. Now, one might find that approach as uh, racial, that they have these two messages, and there would be some merit to that argument. However, another way of understanding and reading it is that they were actively wrestling with the hierarchical race relations in society. They were trying to come up with ways in which they can address this problem and invite everybody's participation, including that of European Americans, in addressing this issue. So they were not oblivious to it. On the other hand, if we look at the Tuskegee study, as you yourself mentioned a little while ago, they did not invite, they did not even see the community that they were working with. They were manipulating and exploiting because that's what was going on in the study. They did not pay attention to community leadership at all. There were no black people who were involved from the community that they were in their work at that time serving. They were not working with the community. They had their own agenda that they conceived from the community. And then they used these black people for experiments that were unethical. And they did not consult the community in any which way in designing or implementing their project. There is also evidence that there were some black people who are um, there was a nurse, uh, African-American nurse, who was involved with the, the Tuskegee study. There were some other African-American people, perhaps, who were involved with the study.
but we have very unclear information on what was their role in the study. Scholars believe that many of them were ignorant of the nature of the study, the true nature of the study, and they were not made party or made privy to uh, the decision-making process either, which is understandable right. uh, that they would not be participating in the decision-making process. So that's, that's one major theme within the, the Negro project. They were, and obviously, so these were the concerns that the American Social Hygiene Association had. Now, needless to say, the African-American community obviously had concerns because they were living the racial inequality every day in their lives. So they obviously had concerns about this project and which they voiced in their meetings with the American uh, Hygi uh, Social Hygiene Association. So for example, a bishop from the Fraternal Council of Negro Churches in their meeting with the association in 1944 said that they were that they were concerned that federal government was spending a lot of money on venereal disease control, but they had misgivings about how much of this money was being spent on the African American community. Similar concerns about how to communicate the, the nature of this project and the purpose of this project to the African-American community was voiced by the National Negro Insurance Corporation Association. And uh, they had said that, in their own words, they had said that African-American people were concerned and sensitive about how they were being approached around this issue. And therefore, they wanted to be very clear with American Hy Social Hygiene Association as to what their role would be in supporting this project. So they said they would support this project, but they wanted to have a discussion because they voiced their concern that African-American communities, they were there was a lot of sensitivity in the community about how they were being approached. Yeah. So they obviously, because they were living these unequal circumstances every day in their lives, obviously they, they were not oblivious to race and they were not colorblind towards it. The themes that you mentioned, had the African-American community been invited in on the Tuskegee study, there would have been no Tuskegee study because there would be absolutely opposition to it. So even if folks who were from, I believe it was Macon County, Alabama, even if the local folks weren't aware of the advances in the treatment of venereal disease, someone would have gotten wind of it and said, um, no. That's right. So, they were lied, and that is a fact that's now well known, that they were told that they were being treated for that blood, yeah. and that this, this was for their own benefit. And several other benefits, such as funeral benefits, were promised to, that were not true either. So a lot of false hopes were given to the community. Yes. And, and as you rightly said, had there been any participation, there wouldn't have been a Tuskegee study. Let me tell you another story, for example, about their acknowledgement uh, in the Negro project of race being an active element. There was a meeting between African-American community leaders and the, the American Social Hygiene Association, and they watched educational film, a movie about venereal disease prevention, and the cast, um, including the medical personnel as well as the patients, were all white. And the leaders from African-American community said, well, that's not going to work with the African-American community if you show this movie because they need to see a way of connecting with the documentary. If they don't find themselves represented in the documentary, then it's going to limit how much they can receive out of it. And then somebody discussed the idea, and everybody agreed with that idea, that there should be a documentary uh, that would be a mixed-based documentary. So both doctors, and as well as patients and nurses, they could, would be black and white. That idea, it, it received a big support, but immediately, uh, that idea, uh, they decided that it was not going to work because neither community was going to be 
uh, very approving of. And they said, well, we need to have a documentary with just black cast uh, because there would be a strong opposition from the, from the white community and from the black community for a mixed race documentary, which in itself it tells the story of how much they were acknowledging of race as an active issue. Yes. Uh, they were not oblivious to it. They, they did not have a blind spot. Uh, they were struggling with it. They were wrestling with it all the time, how to approach this issue without being colorblind, uh, without a blind spot towards it. They also acknowledged that there was a racial dimension to syphilis. It wasn't just a disease that impacted everybody equally, that there was a racial dimension to syphilis. And let me explain that further. They said, that syphilis was not a disease of the race. They said that the microorganism that causes the disease, and I quote, does not know the color of a person's skin, unquote. Um, so they did not in any way try to assign blame to the African American community um, for the disease, or they did not they did not see that it was a disease, the cause for higher rate of African, uh, a higher rate of prevalence of disease in African American community, they did not find that cause to be the bodies of African-American, that this disease, that they were more prone to getting this disease. They, in fact, blamed it on the limitations of economic, social, medical, and educational opportunities. They said that African-American community, African-American people had far less access to health systems. They were working in, 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 in far more unhygienic conditions that they had uh, a greater vulnerability towards it because of their socioeconomic status. And so there was acknowledgement of structural factors. Absolutely. They acknowledged it wasn't their bodies that were causing this high rate of prevalence or higher rate of prevalence in the white communities. It was their living conditions. It was their social conditions. It was their lack of access or poor access to health care. That was, so you're right, that they, there was an acknowledgement of the, of the structure of the social systems that were at play in, in lower health um, care uh, for African-American communities and high rate of prevalence, syphilis in the community. To me, as I was going through, as I was doing this project, the big question to me was, so why then does the Tuskegee study, and Tuskegee study, you know, it, just to sort of briefly summarize, it, it was a study that they had 600 um, subjects in the study and 399 out of those 600 were identified syphilis patients. And it ran from the year 1932 to 1972. And in, the 1970, in 1972, it came to an unplanned end. It wasn't a planned end. It was because somebody was a whistleblower and then a journalist broke the story in the media and that created a public outcry, which led to the termination of the study. So had that not happened, who knows how long that might have continued. It was funded by the United States Public Health Services. It was a public health program. Uh, in that program, the subject, even though it was an experimental study, truly what was going on was they were lying to people that they were being treated for syphilis, even though they were not being treated for syphilis at any point in time. There was even not an intention to treat these patients for syphilis. It was only to, in their own words, uh, and I, I can't quote it verbatim, but this, the experiment was about, in a sense, studying this disease in their natural environment, in the natural environment of the subjects, which were African-American men. So they were studying it. They were not preventing or curing it. And they were trying to see how it in impacted black men. And I've said they were lied to and cheated, but they were also tortured. A lot of very excruciatingly painful experiments uh, were conducted on them, and they were tortured. Uh, through this experiment. And today, as we know, it's a very embarrassing and shameful example of how research should not be done. Yes. You've been listening to Alan Kar Sharma discuss the intersections of race, gender, and public health on Living Proof. Be sure to tune in for the second episode in this two-part series.
Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.